0: These advances and initiatives paved the way, for sure, for broader whistleblower encouragement and protection. Overall, the effort to protect whistleblowers are still currently very limited, particularly given that the duty to protect the identity of whistleblowers and protections against retaliation are not broad enough. Importantly, as I was mentioning, they're not contemplated in a statute. This body of comprehensive language regarding whistleblowing, it's a very lowly-rhymed I've been dormed.
1: Welcome to the Hughes Hubbard Anti Corruption and Internal Investigation Practice Group's podcast, All Things Investigations. The Hughes Hubbard Anti Corruption and Internal Investigation Practices Group represents many of the premier companies around the world, providing advice on issues spanning the full anti corruption and compliance spectrum. In this podcast, Host Tom Fox and members of the Hughes Hubbard Anti-Corruption Internal Practice Group will highlight some of the key legal issues involved in white-collar and other investigations, both domestically and internationally. We will tackle topical issues involved in investigations, as well as explore how companies can prevent and detect issues that arise in conducting investigations on a worldwide basis. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, back for another episode of the Hughes-Hubbard podcast, All Things Investigations. Today, I'm thrilled to have with me Diego Duran and Salim Saud. We're going to explore some anti-corruption and compliance issues outside the United States. So we have two experts, Diego on Mexico and Salim on Brazil. Gentlemen, first of all, welcome. And thank you both so much for taking the time to visit with me today. It's a pleasure, Tom. Could I ask you to tell us a little bit about your professional backgrounds and your current positions at Hughes Hubbard? And Diego, I'll start with you.
0: Sure. Thanks, Tom. So I'm a duly licensed lawyer. I'm licensed to practice law in Mexico and in the U.S. in a couple of states. And I have a criminal defense background. I spent several years in Mexico working for one of the top criminal boutique law firms, defending and prosecuting, helping the prosecution with some some investigations. When I moved my practice to the U.S., it was a natural segue to start working on what here in the U.S. we call white-collar criminal defense and corporate investigations. I am a partner at Hughes Hubbard. I reside in the D.C. office, and I'm also the co-chair of the Latin American Disputes Practice Group.
2: Salim? So my, I'm an attorney based in Brazil, in Rio de Janeiro, and I have spent some time in the U.S. I have practice law in, in Houston, moved back to Brazil. And since 2016, I'm the partner of my boutique law firm, Saudi Advogados, and we have an association with Hugh Trevor and Reed. Our practice is basically anti-corruption. And I'm also a professor at FGV, where I'm the coordinator of the anti-corruption compliance LLM.
1: So, Diego, I have practiced law in the great state of Texas for nearly 40 years. Most of my career was in the energy space. And so we were always very interested about anti-corruption developments in Mexico, both legislation, investigations, and enforcement actions. So I wanted to maybe start with asking you, how do you assess or what is perhaps the national anti-corruption system in Mexico? As
0: you may have known, Tom, it's a very important development in in Mexican anti-corruption law. It is basically Mexico's relatively new anti-corruption system, which followed a 2015 constitutional reform. And it really meant a complete revamp of the way Mexico fights corruption. The the NAS, as we call it, provided for the enactment and amendment of several laws. It really changed the landscape for Mexican officials, domestic and foreign companies, as well as individuals operating in Mexico. Even though the NAS is still mainly dealing with anti corruption from a criminal perspective, yet with a more specialized, focused, and robust process. However, there is a new emphasis on administrative enforcement, which is something interesting about the whole new system.
1: How would you characterize either the NAS approach or perhaps even the current Mexican administration's approach to anti-corruption investigation and enforcement, Diego?
0: I'll tell you how the system was designed, and my characterization of that system, because as we will discuss later, what the system was designed for is not exactly what's happening right now in reality in terms of the implementation and enforcement. But I would characterize the Mexican approach to corruption, thinking about NAS, as holistic, specialized, coordinated, and inclusive. And let me just briefly walk you through why I think that is. Holistic is because it really seeks, especially in comparison to what Mexico was doing for, not only to combat, but prevent corruption. Before then, before now, there wasn't really you know, a structure, prevention, policy, and approach to anti-corruption. And also, not only from a criminal perspective, as I mentioned, the administrative perspective is somehow an interesting new emphasis that it's been taking. Specialized because there were several institutions, specially created to operate within the NAS landscape, coordinated because it really focuses and puts a lot of weight into the federal and state coordination, which sounds obvious, but before the NAS, there wasn't really something as specific about it, and there was really no coordination. And inclusive, which is something very peculiar, and I'm still to find another anti-corruption system that has this position of including the civil society, the public at large, really the NAS sought to promote greater involvement of the civil society in the fight against corruption. It designed several roles for the civil society within its structure.
1: So you've described how it was intended or how I understood it was intended. What are some of the key features of the NAS that either businesses, compliance officers, or perhaps legal-legal types like the three of us need to concern ourselves with when advising clients?
0: Sure. So there are several features Some of them were already in place before the uh, creation of the NAS. Some of them are completely new, but what's important is that either new or old, the NAS really englobes them and uses them in a a more deliberate and systematic way. So just to list the the most important, I think, corporate criminal liability. It's something kind of recent for Mexican law. Corporate administrative liability, anti-corruption compliance programs, which is the first time such a concept is included in, in Mexican law. Foreign bribery, there's an ask to, to pursue foreign bribery, but it's obviously not been exploited as of now. Disclosure of assets, conflict of interest, and tax returns for public officials. There was a, a renewal of the law that included all these items and are key for the efforts currently. Active bribery, passive bribery, complete prohibition of facilitation payments, complete provision of gifts and entertainment. And obviously, it doesn't matter if primary Act is committed directly or indirectly. The use of intermediaries is no concern, you know, directly or indirectly, you will be punished. I would say those are the key ones.
1: How would you assess implementation and enforcement to date, Diego?
0: I kind of highlighted that there was something going on. There's truly a disconnect. To date, the implementation and enforcement of the NAS has been really mixed. And I'm trying to be positive and and not criticize the government too much, but there's no way I had to help them. I mean, there's been a bunch of issues. Designation of an appointment of a government officials are key and have important roles, especially in these newly created institutions. And so one example of them is something new that was created was specialized administrative judges. that would specialized in anti-corruption cases as part of you know, the new emphasis on administrat- administrative Enforcement. To this day, there are a bunch of them that haven't been appointed. And that obviously makes it hard to punish serious administrative misconduct. So that shows you how that, that aspect of the implementation of the NAS is broken. Moreover, there is really no evidence to date that the new framework and infrastructure created by the NAS has been really utilized in major corruption criminal investigations. There's a big lack of public information on the prosecution of corruption cases, which obviously makes it hard for everyone to understand what the hell is happening in Mexico and how the government is really using the NAS. There have been some efforts to fight uh, notorious corruption cases, but either these efforts have not gone through the NAS system or the results of ongoing investigations have proved slow and remain to be seen. Again, there's really not a lot of information. The lack of criminal enforcement under the NAS is perhaps really well highlighted by Mexico's failure to use the NAS in its somehow recent efforts to punish companies and individuals involved in the Odebrecht corruption scandal. These efforts have been handled outside of the NAS criminal framework. And by all indications, the anti-corruption prosecutor's office has not been involved in this or any other major corruption investigation demonstrating that the NAS is still not being really utilized in the most serious corruption matters, which is obviously an issue.
1: Could I ask you, what is the national digital platform, Diego?
0: This is very interesting, and and I think it's one of the by far coolest tools that have been contemplated as part of the NAS. It's the national digital platform, and it's supposed to help prevent and combat corruption. However, the platform is not fully functional yet. But it is anticipated to be a centralized database designed to host and process information about federal and state officials, such as assets, personal interests, and tax information, the names of public officials involved in public procurement processes, the names of public officials and private entities that have been sanctioned for certain offenses, information about public audit committees, corruption complaints, public procurement contracts. Really, the data on the platforms comes from federal government, state governments, and it's supposed to be an autonomous bodies. And it's conceptualized as an interoperable platform, which will integrate and connect the various information systems held by the authorities in charge to fight corruption. Because what's happening now is that each state has a different system, federal federal government has a different system, and they just really need to organize information and agree on how they're going to be sharing that. And that, from a technological perspective, you know, it takes a while to do it, but it's a very exciting development. And a lot of people like myself, we kind of wait for this to be fully operable because we think it's going to help the fight against corruption in Mexico.
1: Diego, one of the key components of a United States-based compliance program or government enforcement is whistleblowers. I wanted to ask you, is there perhaps a difference in philosophy under the NAS? Or the other question might be, what are some of the challenges regarding whistleblower protection? Under the NAS?
0: It is regarded as something important, although in the list of important things, maybe not as important. That's why it has been relegated. But some steps have been taken to start implementing these protection systems for whistleblowers. But it's important to understand in Mexico, prior to the adoption of the NAS, the Mexican approach really focused on establishing mechanisms to reward whistleblowers. They were just interested in getting information and reward whomever provided that information, not to protect the people providing the information. And that's kind of like the switch in the way of understanding what's happening before and now. With the adoption of the NAS, which is, as you know, cutting edge, you know, several cutting edge approaches to tackling co- corruption, the laws including the NAS, the shift of the focus and put in place protections for whistleblowers, and particularly those reporting government misconduct, and government officials. Mexico does not currently have a comprehensive whistleblower protection law. However, certain whistleblower protections are contained in some laws. Furthermore, in an unprecedented effort to further protect whistleblowers, in July 2019, the Ministry of Public Function launched what I think is the the most important body, although very lowly ranked in terms of law hierarchy. It's called an internal and external citizens' corruption alert program. And it's really within the Mexican system. It's the only place where more comprehensively protections for whistleblower and their function is discussed. These advances and initiatives pave the way for sure for broader whistleblower encouragement and protection. Overall, the effort to protect whistleblowers are still currently very limited, particularly given that the duty to protect the identity of whistleblowers and protections against retaliation are not broad enough. Importantly, as I was mentioning, they're not contemplated in a statute. This body of comprehensive language regarding whistleblowing, it's a very lowly ranked admin norm, considering the whole pyramid of laws within the Mexican system. So this brings, you know, completely different discussion about What happens if this administrative norm says something, but then a statute says something else? Well, that's other. the statute is going to obviously trump whatever this administrative norm is saying. So that just causes a lot of uh, other issues. So there are some who think that this should be even codified by statute or as a constitutional amendment. There are pros and cons for both, but the discussion is still ongoing.
1: So if I could ask you, Diego, what do you see as two or three of the top challenges for anti-bribery, anti-corruption enforcement in Mexico?
0: So first of all, and if it's not obvious from what we've been discussing in the past moments, we have a very interesting and well-designed anti-corruption system, which is already in place. It's lacking some implementation, but most importantly, it's not being fully used. So I would say the government really needs to start fully using the NAS, number one. When that happens and it starts seeing the results, other problems will be tackled, which is the NAS institutions, especially the anti-corruption prosecutor's office, they need more budget and they need better prepared professionals, truly specialized, which is really, we're not seeing that happening. Also, there needs to be a political will for all this to happen. And that will also bring real autonomy to, for example, these elements of the institutions, the function, functionaries working on the specialized institutions Once that happens, we will be able to start thinking about more proactive ways of using the NAS, such as maybe mimic what other countries are doing, especially the U.S., which is, you know, the U.S. collects a ton of money every year by imposing sanctions and penalties to companies who breach the FCPA. So I don't see why other countries could not be doing that. That's profitable.
1: So, Salim, if I could switch over to you and your area of expertise, the country of Brazil. First of all, I'm sorry we didn't know each other when we both practiced in Houston, but perhaps we can correct that at some point. I don't think there is a country in the world that has been viewed as more of a partner to the United States Department of Justice and SEC than the prosecutorial services in Brazil. Over the past six or seven years, in been extensive cooperation, obviously starting with Carwash or Lava Chato and moving forward. And that cooperation continues today. Even, of course, though, there was a change in administration. So I wondered with that incredibly long-winded introduction, if you might be able to tell us about some of the key cases that you observed over the past several months and whether you believe they show there'll be continued cooperation between international investigative and prosecutorial services like Brazil and the United States.
2: Yes, I think that the cooperation between the Brazilian authorities and the United States is magnificent. With Operation Kawash, there was a tendency for the companies to start negotiating with the U.S. authorities and the Brazilian Public Prosecutor's Office. And since the Technique FMC agreement, we have seen more and more global resolutions that also involve the CGU and the AGU. As you know, Brazil has basically two systems for anti-corruption enforcement. One is led by the CGU and AGU that act together and enter into administrative agreements with companies, administrative leniency agreements with companies. The other is led by the MPF, the Brazilian Public Prosecutor's Office. Sometimes they sit together and negotiate jointly, sometimes they don't. And originally at, at Operation Car Wash, we saw a number of companies that were very concerned with the criminal prosecutions of their executives, only entering into agreements with the MPF and later having to find out that they would need to negotiate an agreement with the CGU and AGU as well. Whereas now we see more and more companies trying to enter into joint agreements with all of the authorities and also with the US authorities. Among these, in the last few years, I mentioned the Technip FMC agreement, which was the first global agreement from 2019. But last year, we had the AMEC-Cluster-Wheeler agreement, which was an agreement entered jointly by the DOJ, the SEC, the CGO, and MPF. Another agreement that was not a global resolution, at least not a simultaneous global resolution, it was the Samsung agreement. Samsung had entered into a, into a settlement with the U.S. authorities in 2019, and the original an agreement with the Brazilian authorities in 2021. More recently, we've had Stericycle, which entered into a global agreement with the Brazilian authorities and the U.S. authorities. They agreed to pay $109 million, 9 million Brazilian reais to the Brazilian authorities, and they were given a credit of that amount out of the amounts paid to the DOJ Even more recently, we just had the Glencore case. Glencore reached a global agreement with the U.S. authorities and the Brazilian MPF. They have not made any announcement with respect to an agreement with the CGU. It is possible they're still negotiating an agreement with the CGU and AGU. But what we have seen more and more is the involvement of all the Brazilian authorities in these joint negotiations with the U.S. authorities. And on top of that, we know that the authorities do share information when they're conducting their investigations.
1: Salim, how would you assess the impact of COVID-19 on overall Brazilian anti-bribery, anti-corruption investigation or enforcement efforts?
2: The first thing that people ask is, and people think, is that because of COVID, there was no enforcement. And that's not the case. 2020, for example, was the year in which the MPF entered into the largest number of leniency agreements. 2021 was the year in which they entered to seven agreements, which is the third largest number since they started negotiating leniency agreements. The CGU actually had a reduction in the number of leniency agreements they entered in the period, but that doesn't mean that they were not working. They ended up signing a number of different agreements and settlements afterwards. But I think the main impact of the pandemic was that because of the emergency, a number of bid regulations were loosened to allow for a very quick acquisition of uh, supplies. And that has resulted in a surge in investigations in the healthcare sector. So what we saw as a result of the pandemic was that the healthcare sector was even more the object of the investigations and the target of the authorities because of the scandals that ensued.
1: Could you tell us a little bit about the potential impact of the new Brazilian data privacy law, which I'm going to call the Brazilian GDPR? Yeah,
2: so the Brazilian GDPR or the LGPD, which is the Brazilian acronym for it, a law that came into effect recently still any relevant enforcement it does bring some concerns, in particular in, in the investigation field. Because of the regulations, there was a concern of what were the limits the companies could go to when investigating their employees, what were the limits of how to handle the information and the personal information of employees in connection with the interviews. The general view, however, is that it doesn't change the ability for companies to conduct the internal investigations. It just requires the companies to be very attentive on how to justify the access to the information. And discussions about this already occurred prior to the enactment of the law, and it only became more clear the need to justify the access to the information of the employees and obviously handling the access to the information in a way that is only limited to what is necessary for an investigation. That's the main impact. We're still to see large enforcement of the Brazilian GDPR or the LGPD, and when we'll see this, we'll know better how the authorities will actually expect the the companies to act.
1: Salima, I understand there have been some recent regulations announced regarding or around the Brazilian anti-corruption law, the Clean Companies Act. I was wondering if you might be able to give us the highlights of those and how you believe they may strengthen or even impact anti-corruption investigations and enforcement in Brazil.
2: Yeah, there have been a few regulations issued in the last uh, few months. The Brazilian federal government has enacted an anti-corruption action plan. And as part of this action plan, they have implemented new regulations. One of them was the enactment of new regulations by COAFI, which is the Brazilian money laundering or financial intelligence unit, the money laundering authority. They have expanded the role. Of public exposed persons to include a number of state and municipal agents that were not originally in the list. So that created a, an additional layer of authority by the Brazilian Financial Intelligence Unit with respect to these individuals. There has been a change, a major change, in a Brazilian anti corruption legislation known as the improperty law. This legislation changed, simplified the procedure for the enforcement of this law. It was a very protected proceeding that required, they had a special procedure in court and that has been simplified, but it also eliminated the negligent acts of improbity, These should reduce the number of improperly lawsuits going forward. However, the simplification of the procedure will also bring more effectiveness to the law because what we've seen more recently, actually on on July 18th, 2022, we had the, came into force a new decree that regulates the Brazilian anti-corruption law. The Brazilian anti-corruption law was regulated in 2015 by a a decree that was revoked by this new decree that came into force on July 18th, 2022. And this new regulation basically brings to the the law all of the experience that the Brazilian regulator, the CGU, has achieved over the period. So there is more definition and more certainty as to how to apply the penalties, how to calculate the penalties. And this will make a practitioner in the field of anti-corruption compliance much more able to advise his clients and also will make companies more able to understand what are the exact consequences of wrongdoing and what are the exact consequences of a settlement, which before that, we only knew for experience. We now have it in more detail in the law.
1: Salim, if you could detail, in your opinion, two or three of the largest challenges as we move into the second half of 2022 around and our corruption investigations in Brazil? Well, I think the main
2: challenge for, well, pretty much anything that has to do with the government in Brazil this year will be the elections, either the last year of this government or the last year of the first term of this government. And we will see an attempt by the regulators to reach settlements by the end of the year, just considering the possibility of a change of government. But we we'll also see some difficulty in adopting new regulations and new legislations to to the extent needed. All changes of government actually bring some uncertainty with respect to how will enforcement continue, but also bring some the possibility that whatever is going on under this the current government will be examined in the future government. So I think that the elections is the biggest challenge. It could be good or bad depending on which side of of the political spectrum you are. But I think that we'll see some turbulence in the government in the next couple of months. On top of that, I think that the change in the, probably a law that I mentioned is probably one of the other main challenges. A number of proceedings are going on that have been initiated under the preceding law, and they're now being adapted to the new law. We still have to see how the courts will decide with respect to the applicability of the new law on the ongoing cases, so, I think this is certainly one of the issues that will have, will raise a number of doubts and questions in the next couple of months.
1: Gentlemen, unfortunately, we are near the end of our time for this episode, but I was wondering if our listeners wanted any more information on yourselves or perhaps Hughes Hubbard or even the always great Hughes Hubbard FCPA and a bribery report,
0: which comes out each year. What would be the best place for them to go? If I may, Tom, yes, definitely our website, www.hughshubbard.com. They can explore different practices and for sure get the, a copy, a digital copy of all of our FCPA and anti-corruption alerts, which are, as you mentioned, are, is a fantastic resource that we devote a lot of time to produce every year.
1: So I'm going to just take it a little bit further because I find the alert not only an excellent wrap up of what might have happened in the prior year. But really, it's something that I use the entire year. And here we are in July, and I'm still referencing it for both what happened over the past year, but more importantly, in my discussions with both of you all, what we need to be considering from the compliance and anti-corruption compliance perspective. I wanted to thank you both for taking the time to visit with me, and I hope that we can continue this conversation.
0: It was a pleasure, Tom. Thank you
2: for having me. Pleasure.